This is Guns and Butter. Just, uh, I think it was one or two weeks before the Miami Herald expose came out, there was a change um, to U.S. policy that essentially allows every government agency to create a public statement, financial statement, and a private uh, financial statement. And the private uh, and the public financial statement can be totally different. Um, but the public one can be a total lie and the government agency doesn't have to say it has been changed or modified or that it is a lie at all. Now looking at public financial statements, there, there's no way to know how much money will be unaccounted for. Of course, we've seen over you know the past decades, really beginning since 1997, that um, several U.S. departments, uh, specifically the Department of Defense, um, have been unable to account for huge amounts of money. I mean, in the trillions of dollars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Whitney Webb. Today's show, from Reagan to Clinton, organized crime, intelligence, and human trafficking. Whitney Webb is a Mint Press news journalist based in Chile. She has contributed to several independent media outlets, including Global Research, EcoWatch, the Ron Paul Institute, and 21st Century Wire, among others. She has made several radio and television appearances and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. Today we discuss part two and part four of her new four-part exclusive investigative series, Inside the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail. Part two is Government by Blackmail, Jeffrey Epstein, Trump's mentor, and the dark secrets of the Reagan era. Part four is From Spook Air to the Lolita Express, the genesis and evolution of the Jeffrey Epstein-Bill Clinton relationship. Whitney Webb, welcome again. Thank you for joining me. No problem. It's great to be with you. Part two of your four-part investigative series, The Jeffrey Epstein Scandal Too Big to Fail, is Government by Blackmail, Jeffrey Epstein, Trump's Mentor, and the Dark Secrets of the Reagan Era, in which you take a close look at some of the insiders around President Ronald Reagan. You write that many of the same names that surrounded Roy Cohn until his death in the late 1980s would later come to surround Jeffrey Epstein, with their names later appearing in Epstein's now infamous Little Black Book. Roy Cohn was extremely influential. According to your report, Roy Cohn was close with the Reagans and with Reagan's CIA director, William Casey. How did Roy Cohn help Reagan secure the presidency? Well, um, we know that he was working very closely with Reagan's uh, 1980 campaign and that he had also worked for the unsuccessful campaign of Ronald Reagan four years prior. Um, and he was also um, worked very closely with Bill Casey, um, who had a very important position in, in Reagan's campaign. And um, according to Roy Cohn's longtime secretary, actually during the campaign, uh, Bill Casey was calling Roy Cohn um, every single day uh, to coordinate things about the election specifically. We also know that this is the year, um, 1980, when um, 
Roy Cohn met up with one of his other well-known protégés, or rather well-known today, Roger Stone, and actually had Roger Stone uh, leave a giant suitcase full of money um, in front of, um, I believe, the Liberal Party's political headquarters in New York as a way to get um, that party to choose a specific candidate that would split the vote in New York, um, split Jimmy Carter's uh, portion of the vote, that way allowing Ronald Reagan to carry New York. Um, so we know that, um, you know, some of these activities were barely legal, perhaps illegal that, that Roy Cohn was involved with doing sort of these, these dirty tricks and, and what have you that he and, and Roger Stone, um, were, were relatively famous for. Um, and we know that he had a close relationship with, um, with both Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, particularly Nancy Reagan, um, and that he had access to the White House. He actually is the person, Roy Cohn is the person that introduced um, Rupert Murdoch to uh, Ronald Reagan. And um, at that meeting, uh, successfully convinced Rupert Murdoch to um, help promote um, Ronald Reagan's um, uh, hardline policies in, in Central America. And of course, hardline policy is the word um, of the period for what was going on there. We know now that it was, you know, the covert arming of paramilitary groups and, and regime change and, and things like that. But basically Roy Cohn is the person that got um, Murdoch on board and, and sort of brought him into sort of this Iran Contra orbit because it was specifically about the Contra war um, in, in terms of Central American policy. Let's go through some of Roy Cohn's very close friends within the media, including media moguls. Who was within this group of Cohn's media friends? You've just mentioned Rupert Murdoch. Right. So um, one of Roy Cohn's closest uh, friends in media was William Buckley, um, the famous conservative journalist um, who um, I believe founded the National Review. He was also uh, a longtime host of Firing Line. Um, and he was also very close friends uh, with Barbara Walters, actually, who he met through, um, I believe it was uh, her father that introduced the two of them. And, and Roy Cohn would often um, jokingly refer to Barbara as um, his fiance. And of course, uh, publicly, they were dating um, during a period of time. But of course, we know now that that wasn't really the case because Roy Cohn um, was a closeted homosexual. Um, but we do know that beyond just uh, individual journalists, another notable journalist of the period, who I forgot to mention is, is William Sapphire, who was a columnist for the New York Times. Um, but Roy Cohn was also very uh, deeply connected to several influential publishers um, besides Rupert Murdoch um, in, in media moguls, people that owned uh, numerous magazines. And this includes um, Cy Newhouse, who had been Cohn's friend since high school, who um, was the owner of Condé Nast magazines, which includes, um, you know, magazines like Vanity Fair, uh, Vogue, GQ, uh, um, I believe it is also Esquire, um, and The New Yorker, as well as uh, several local newspapers throughout the U.S., and also, um, I believe, uh, on some television channels as well. Um, in addition to Newhouse, he was also um, longtime high school friends um, with Richard Berlin, who became um, the owner of the Hearst Corporation, and after William Randolph Hearst, of course. And also um, another of his high school friends, again, um, later became the owner of the National Enquirer. And he was also friends with Mort Zuckerman, who I believe ended up buying, um, I think it was the New York Daily News in the, in the early 90s. So... Um, you know, he was definitely very well connected with a lot of um, prominent uh, publishers as well as individual journalists. And we know, too, from his um, his longtime secretary, Christine Seymour, that if he was unhappy with a story or heard that a story was going to be um, published that he wanted to kill, he would actually just call someone like Rupert Murdoch up directly and say, don't. 
um, let the story be published, basically. And and she said she had overheard calls like that before, and on several occasions, uh, leaving Cone's office and going to you know some of these these publishers. And we also know that he, you know several um, reports and documentaries about Cone's life say that he also manipulated um, Page Six, the gossip section of of the New York Post, I believe, uh, rather frequently, sort of calling in tips quote-unquote, anonymously um, to advance um, some sort of agenda, whether it was political or personal. Well, it certainly sounds that Roy Cohn then had enormous influence with the media. What, what's notable here as well is that um, some of these figures in media um, that I just mentioned actually ended up um, becoming uh, connected to Jeffrey Epstein, or at least appearing in there in, in his little black book, as, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and these include people like um, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Barbara Walters, um, and, and William Buckley, um, and even Alan Dershowitz, actually. Um, and, and all four of those people I just named were actually character witnesses for Roy Cohn at his disbarment hearings. And of course, um, Dershowitz and Trump specifically have come under fire for their relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. But it, it's worth noting, too, that some of these other, you know, journalist figures that were apparently close enough to Roy Cohn to be his character witness also appear in, in, in Epstein's book of contacts uh, years later. So that makes Roy Cohn a very, very powerful figure. You write that Reagan, like Roy Cohn, had deep ties to the same organized crime factions that were among Cohn's clients and affiliates. You cite a Department of Justice probe into talent agency MCA's ties to organized crime and specifically Lou Wasserman. What were the connections between MCA and Ronald Reagan? Well, we know that Lou Wasserman, as head of MCA, was um, you know largely responsible not only for Ronald Reagan's political career but also his his film and um, television career, and was also instrumental in getting uh, Reagan to become president of the Screen Actors Guild, um, which some people argue was. Um, you know, crucial to uh, Reagan launching his political career, um, and, and I say that um, Wasserman was responsible for this. Um, uh, not just um, in in terms of you know favorable treatment to Reagan in film and television and all of that, but because he was also a major uh, funder of Reagan's early political campaigns, um, including his um, his successful bid for governor of California in 1966, and later um, also contributed to his presidential campaigns. Um, and yes, it, it, it is true that uh, I believe during the first year of the Reagan presidency, um, this considerably uh, significant Department of Justice probe into um, MCA's ties to organized crime, or rather Lou Wasserman's company, MCA, um, its ties to organized crime was actually quashed. Um, and this actually angered a lot of um, people that had been working on the case who later spoke out about this um, in a documentary um, called Wages of Spin 2, Bring Down That Wall, that's about um, Reagan's ties to MCA and, and about um, this this probe that was quashed. Um, and apparently the probe began because it was um, revealed um that there was an influential member of the Gambino crime family that was doing business with this company and that um, this is the connection that led the Justice Department to open the probe in the first place. And it's interesting to point out that the the boss of the Gambino crime family um, during this time was actually um, a client of Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was basically uh, legally representing the, the Gambino crime family. 
But Lou Wasserman himself is significant um, when we're talking about this organized crime syndicate that I've um, that I've been writing about in connection uh, to Epstein and some of the people in Epstein's network because Lou Wasserman. Um, he wasn't originally from the West Coast. He moved there later um, when he began his his career in in Hollywood and with MCA and all of that. But previously, um, he lived in in Ohio, and um, there he was a member of the Mayfield Road Gang, which was actually um, a criminal enterprise run by Mo Dalitz, who was a close associate of Mayor Lansky. Um, and according to the FBI. Um, FBI documents, um, Mo Dalitz was considered a very powerful figure in Lansky's crime enterprise, and and the FBI argued that he was actually second only to Lansky himself um, in terms of, of the Jewish mob. And also, Lou Wasserman uh, was not only a member of Mo Dalitz's gang, but actually his wife is the daughter of Mo Dalitz's uh, lawyer, uh, and who was also representing some other organized crime um, uh, members during, during this period of time. And also, it's worth um, pointing out that there is a um, excellent book about this figure named Sidney Korshak um, called Supermob, who um, has been des- described by some as Mayor Lansky's successor. And um, he was actually um, Lou Wasserman's closest friend and also his lawyer, and was also a business partner of Mayor Lansky at one point. Um, and so there, there are substantial ties um, between uh, Lou Wasserman, MCA, and, and, and organized crime. And it's worth pointing out, too, that um, after Reagan left office, actually, I believe it was the Bronfmans that bought a controlling stake in MCA. And that is interesting as well, because we know that the Bronfmans, as I mentioned last time, um, also had um, ties to the same organized crime syndicate, specifically Mayor Lansky. So it was sort of a way of keeping the company um, in the family, so to speak, but um, uh, not publicly so. Well, that's very interesting because I doubt that most people would associate uh, Ronald Reagan with organized crime, but there you have it. Another Reagan insider was Ronald Lauder, billionaire heir to the Estee Lauder cosmetics fortune and president of the World Jewish Congress. Ronald Lauder is not a well-known public figure. How important is he and what can you tell us about him? Right. Well, Ronald Lauder to most Americans may not be a well-known figure per se, but he is definitely a well-known figure within the American Jewish community and also in Israel. He's a major uh, donor to um, numerous Israeli educational institutions and also uh, historically has been one of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, most important donors um, and and supporters, actually. He was a a major supporter of Netanyahu, actually going back to the 1980s um, when he was in cabinets of, of of different prime ministers and later um, was one of the main donors um, and, and key figures in Netanyahu's 1996 campaign for prime minister. And, and uh, Ronald Lauder's role in that campaign is actually credited with Netanyahu's upset victory. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, From Reagan to Clinton, Organized Crime, Intelligence, and Human Trafficking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But beyond that, uh, beyond the ties to Israel specifically, Ronald Lauder um, was very much a part of the world that uh, Roy Cohn inhabited um, because actually he uh, he himself and actually his parents were close friends of Roy Cohn's. And, um, of course, Donald Trump being a protege of Roy Cohn's, we know that um, Ronald Lauder, uh, by his own admission, has been a close friend of Donald Trump since Trump was in college at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we also know that Ronald Lauder, um, even though 
he um, <laughs> up till you know 1983, he had only uh, his only professional experience had been working with Estee Lauder and companies, his his family company. Um, he was appointed to serve as the um, U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO Affairs in the Reagan administration, despite not having what what one would assume would be the necessary experience for that position which of course often suggests that it may have been a political favor. And of course, um, that would make sense when looking at uh, Ronald Lauder's deep ties to someone like Roy Cohn, for example, um, who, um, as we just mentioned, had uh, close ties um, and close, a close personal relationship with, um, with Ronald Reagan and also his wife. Um, so um, not only was Ronald Lauder Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, he also, um, after that, became Ambassador to Austria, um, U.S. Ambassador to Austria, uh, which appears to have been a position that Lauder himself was seeking because he was interested um, in Austria specifically because that's um, where his, his family originally came from before immigrating to the United States. Um, and... Um, after that, after um, he he left the um, Reagan administration officially, um, he went back to working for Estee and Lauder companies, but also um, he founded his foundation, the Ronald S. Lauder Foundation. And then um, not long after that, in the late 80s, uh, ran a unsuccessful campaign for the mayor of New York against Rudy Giuliani. Um, and of course, he was, he was tapped to do this by um, a well-known political functionary of Roy Cohn and also Roy Cohn's closest associate, and his law partner, uh, Tom Ballon, uh, and of course his politician was Alphonse D'Amato, um, and Tom Ballon and Roy Cohn were both advisors to, to D'Amato. So um, Lauder, um, he began with um, being connected to um, the Roy Cohn political circles in New York, and then he served in the Reagan administration. Then after leaving that, he returned to those same political circles with Roy Cohn. But what's interesting here in relation to Epstein is that um, actually the the um, very same year that Ronald Lauder was U.S. ambassador to Austria, which of course only lasted a year, um, is actually the year that Jeffrey Epstein's mysterious passport that was discovered um, in July um was issued. And of course, there's been a lot of speculation about how Epstein obtained that passport um, and, and exactly who gave it to him because Epstein's defense lawyers um, claimed that this passport had been given to him by quote unquote a friend. And the official reasoning um, for this friend giving Epstein this passport is that in the 1980s, um, they said that some Jewish Americans were informally advised to carry identification with a non Jewish name when traveling. Um, internationally because um, hijackings had become increasingly more common. Um, and given Ron Lauder's uh, position at the time in Austria, it's worth pointing out that um, this passport um, was an Austrian passport, but it listed Jeffrey Epstein's residence as being Saudi Arabia. Um, and it listed a fake name for Jeffrey Epstein, but had his picture. So um, th this passport would not have met the conventional qualifications for an Austrian passport because one has to be a long-term resident of Austria and the residency should uh, presumably be in uh, Austria. They have to be fluent in German. They have to meet several other requirements. We don't um, have any record of Epstein living in Austria for any period of time. And by his own admission, this was given to him by this quote-unquote friend. Um, and it was issued in 1987. And so, um, you know, given that, he wanted to have met the conventional um, qualifications to apply for the Austrian passport, and it was given to him by a friend. Presumably that friend would have had to have had some sort of connection to Austria's State Department during that time. And given that Ronald Lauder is also a member of the mega group that was co-founded by Leslie Wexner, the well-known patron of Jeffrey Epstein and the person, um, by all indications, the person that really bankrolled um, 
a lot of Epstein's activities and was arguably his closest business associate. You know, there's that connection between Ronald Lauder and Leslie Wexner there. Um, and, and of course, the timing of, of Lauder's U.S. ambassadorship to Austria strongly suggests that Lauder may have been the source of this passport and may have had some sort of um, personal relationship to Jeffrey Epstein, which, again, is possible given the circles of New York in which uh, he associated and the fact that um, a lot of those same associates, um, including um, former head of Bear Stearns, Alan Greenberg, who hired Epstein to work at, at that bank, um, was also a close friend of Lauder, for example, and Donald Trump was also a friend of Lauder and Epstein. Uh, it seems it seems highly likely that this is where this passport came from. Um, notably, again, it came at a time when Lauder was serving as an emissary for Ronald Reagan's government. Did Roy Cohn have Iran-Contra connections? Well, as far as we know, um, there haven't um, been any direct connections that have come out beyond the fact of him connecting uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, to uh, the Reagan White House and having this meeting at the Reagan White House for the explicit purpose of um, of convincing Murdoch to uh, use his media holdings to um, increase public support for um, Reagan's support of the Contras. So, um, you know, that was definitely a, a role, but a domestic role, not any direct role in the, um, the, the criminality of Iran-Contra necessarily. But the campaign itself that, that Murdoch had been recruited for by Cohn and, and brought to the, the Reagan White House, you know, as a way of sealing that deal, it was actually a PR campaign that had been launched by uh, William Casey, who was then CIA director himself. So it was a CIA-directed propaganda campaign, but, you know, Roy Cohn wasn't involved in you know, the, the ins and outs of the, the, the flights um, from the U.S. To, to Nicaragua or anything like that. It appears to have just been um, involvement in this PR campaign. What was the White House Callboys Network during George H.W. Bush's presidency? Well, this is the nickname often given to um, a sexual blackmail ring involving children um, that was run by a Washington lobbyist, uh, specifically a Republican lobbyist um, of the period whose name was Craig Spence. And um, I had a hard time digging up exactly when Craig Spence began his lobbying activities, but it was clearly at some point before 1982, because in 1982, um, there was actually a New York Times profile all about Spence. Um, and all about what a great lobbyist he was that basically, um, you know, compared him to Jay Gatsby, which was actually um, a literary comparison also made, uh, funny enough, about um, Jeffrey Epstein, um, because it was unknown how he acquired his wealth and how he had so many high society contacts. Because what the New York Times article said about Craig Spence is that his... Um, his phone book and the guest lists at his parties were like a who's who of Congress, government, and journalism. And that um, he was, quote, hired by his clients as much for whom he knows as what he knows, right? So there's, again, a lot of similarities to people like Roy Cohn and Jeffrey Epstein um, here already, right? And so he was known to have these um, over-the-top parties, a lot of them at his personal home. Where he would have, you know, um, celebrities, ambassadors, people from the State Department, military officials, things like that. He claimed to be a personal friend of Richard Nixon. He claimed to be a, a personal friend of former Attorney General uh, under Nixon, John Mitchell, who also Epstein later claimed to have known uh, personally as well. Um, 
but it, it soon came out. Um, I believe it was um, the year was 1989 when this was revealed that that Spence was actually running a um, a prostitution ring, specifically a homosexual prostitution ring, and that he would offer children uh, or you know minors to his to his clients, and that his clients in this in this ring included government officials, military officers, businessmen, lawyers, bankers, congressional aides, media representatives, and and other um, other professionals, uh, according to the Washington Times. And that um, a lot of these parties that the New York Times article had originally noted um, had uh, hosted key officials of the Reagan and Bush administration um, and, and things like that. But actually his home um, in this Washington Times article, it, it revealed by interviewing numerous people who had attended these parties and actually seen this stuff, that his house had been um, had been bugged. Uh, with recording equipment, it had a secret two-way mirror. He would try to ensnare, um, you know, visitors into these um, sexual encounters, uh, specifically with minors, uh, to use as leverage. And for people that wouldn't fall into that trap, specifically, he would try to offer, um, you know, illegal drugs like cocaine. Um, or things like that. And what's particularly odd about the cocaine aspect is that Spence, uh, Craig Spence, claimed. Um, during this time period as well in the 1980s that he had some sort of connections to U.S. intelligence and that had actually worked for the CIA. And he claimed that he acquired the drugs, um, you know, this cocaine that he would have at these parties through that work and claimed to have been involved in smuggling cocaine into the U.S. from El Salvador, which is interesting given what we know about what was going on um, with the CIA in Iran-Contra um, and specifically the role of drug trafficking um, between the U.S. and Central America during that time. And we also know, of course, um, as I've reported um, in in my second article, on my first article, um, and because of Jeffrey Epstein's own past connections to the CIA, that the CIA has a long history of involvement in these very types of operations um, that Craig Spence was running. But perhaps the most um, troubling evidence of all, and, and, and where this nickname of the White House uh, callboy ring comes from is the fact that Spence would take some of these underage boys that he was exploiting and abusing um, on midnight, quote-unquote, midnight tours um, of the White House, and he claimed that he had been given access, that he and these these minors he was abusing had been given access by top-level officials. And the person that he mentioned specifically to reporters was Donald Gregg, who was the national security advisor um, under George Bush Sr. And of course, uh, Gregg, um, like a lot of officials in the Bush Sr. administration, um, uh, had a history of, of, um, of working for the CIA. Um, Gregg had worked for the CIA from 1951 to 1982 when he left to become national security advisor to Bush when Bush was vice president under Reagan. Um, and he had also uh, worked directly with um, people like uh, William Barr, the current attorney general, who also has close ties to uh, this this whole network and and was well aware of um, the CIA's sexual blackmail operations in the late 70s because he stonewalled that information from coming out to the to the church committee, um, along with Bill Barr, who was also involved in stonewalling the church committee. So was Donald Gregg. And of course, Donald Gregg um, has some ties into one of the close friends of Roy Cohn that I mentioned earlier, who would be William Buckley. Uh, Donald Gregg's daughter married William Buckley's son. So, you know, they were, uh, I guess, parents-in-laws which is um, an interesting connection there. Um, but, um, of course, this story ended up uh, going away, more or less, after Spence um, was found um, dead of what was ruled a suicide in a hotel room, um, again, sort of driving home the, the similarities between someone like Craig Spence and someone like Jeffrey Epstein. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, From Reagan to Clinton, 
organized crime, intelligence, and human trafficking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that the CIA, in conjunction with organized crime, had secretly borrowed money from various savings and loans, SNL institutions, to fund covert operations. One of those SNLs had Neil Bush, George H.W. Bush's son, on its board, and it had done business with the Nebraska Credit Union. I believe this credit union would have been uh, Franklin that was featured in John DeCamp's The Franklin Cover-Up. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. You are correct. That is the Franklin Community um, Federal Credit Union that was run by Larry King, who was, of course, um, a prominent Republican activist and lobbyist uh, based in Omaha, Nebraska. And um, we know, of course, that this scandal that came out, um, the revelations about this um, child sex abuse and and ritual murder ring um, that that Larry King was running um, was aggressively covered up by the FBI and, and federal authorities likely because of what you just mentioned that there was um that this credit union that was found to be a front for this this really just horrific um these horrific activities had ties to George Bush senior um his son Neil Bush um but there were also other ties between Larry King and um you know, the uh, top officials during this period, we know, for example, that uh, Larry King co-founded and donated uh, tens of thousands of dollars to um, an organization called Citizens for America that was affiliated with the Reagan administration, which actually sponsored speaking trips for leaders of the Contra paramilitaries of Nicaragua and also Oliver North himself, um, and that he was also... Um, through Citizens for America, which he co-founded, he co-founded that with a man named David Carmen, whose father um, was serving as the head of um, the General Services Administration under Ronald Reagan, and who um, went on to create a public relations firm with the former head of covert operations um, at the CIA under Bill Casey, if you can believe that, um, for people that aren't already familiar with the case of the Franklin scandal. So um, it's, um, it's not surprising the reason as to why this was covered up. Um, but what's actually um, not covered enough, I would say, in relation to the Franklin scandal is that this um, White House cowboy ring I just mentioned that was run by Craig Spence um, was actually the way in which Larry King's um, child sex abuse ring was discovered because they were looking at um, you know, Spence's financial records and they found um, information about Larry King um, and his credit union that seemed suspicious. And what they later uncovered is that the, the ring that Spence was running and the ring that King was running were part of the same, operated under the same umbrella group, uh, which John DeCamp, the, the main investigator in, into the Franklin scandal, said um, he cited sources who said that that umbrella group was known as Bodies by God. And what is really um, just so um, troubling here, um, I don't even think troubling is a strong enough word for that, is that um, both King and Spence, as, as we've just laid out, right, um, had deep ties to, um, you know, the top echelons of, of power, of U.S. political power during this time period, and they were both connected and working as part of the same group, which suggests, uh, strongly suggests that this type of practice was actually very widespread during this period of time, because, you know, um, what King and, and what Spence were doing, they were just the two that were discovered. How many more were operating under this umbrella group? Does this umbrella group still operate? Has it expanded? How many branches does it have? You know, King was living as far away as Nebraska. Spence was based in the Washington, D.C. area. It really makes you wonder how extensive these types of activities are. But, of course, going back to Jeffrey Epstein, it, it makes it um, 
perhaps easier to understand how someone like Epstein could operate uh, for decades with impunity and do this type of um, activity, um, that this type of um, child exploitation um, that he was involved in targeting underage girls, how he how he could get away with that for so long. Um, I think, you know, if you look back into the history of what was going on and what came out in the 1980s, it becomes quite clear why uh, someone like Jeffrey Epstein um, was able to um, do this type of activities and why he was so well connected to so many powerful people. And, of course, the Larry King that we're talking about is not the television personality. This is a a different uh, Larry King. In Part 4, your concluding segment in this series, From Spook Air to the Lolita Express, The Genesis and Evolution of the Jeffrey Epstein-Bill Clinton Relationship, you take a look at the Clinton's connections to Iran-Contra. What did you discover? Well, frankly, um, when it comes to um, you know Clintons and Iran Contra, what I what I wrote about in this um, in this series isn't necessarily new information, but it is um, importance in the overall context of of what I've been um, writing about. Because as I mentioned, um, as I was just talking about, you know, in part two of my series, there were a lot of these sexual blackmail operations and, and rings exploiting children that were directly connected to um, prominent figures in Iran Contra and in the general um, you know intelligence agency activity of the time period. So that's why in talking about the Jeffrey Epstein and Clinton relationship, um, it's important to note the ties of both the Clintons and, of course, Jeffrey Epstein himself uh, to Iran-Contra and Iran-Contra figures, based on what we know about the Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Clinton relationship going forward. As far as the the Clintons and um, Iran Contra, of course, this um, this connection really centers around uh, what would otherwise be a not very significant town in Arkansas, known as Mina, uh, in in the Ozark Mountains. Um, and there, we know that there was this airport, of course, that was used by the CIA. Um, um, in that lots of um, CIA-connected airlines, some of them operated by the CIA front company Southern Air Transport, would go to MENA to um, drop off drugs brought from South America, take back weapons, uh, and would also bring, uh, you know, members of the Contras themselves for training. Um, they weren't trained at MENA Airport specifically. They were trained at a, a facility um not far from there, but there was definitely a lot of CIA um, activity um, going on in this area, and it would have been very hard for Bill Clinton not to have known um, that this was going on in his state. Um, and we actually have people that have investigated this over the years have have pretty much provided um, uh, quite compelling evidence that he was aware, specifically because of the fact that um, um, a lot of the the money from from the sale of these drugs was shown to be laundered through state financial institutions of Arkansas. Again, would have been hard to have done that um, <laughs> without without Clinton himself knowing about it. But something that was surprising to me um, that I hadn't known about before had to do um, with a, a book that was written by um, Terry Reed, who um, was working for Oliver North um, and was based in Arkansas during this period um, in relation to Iran-Contra. And he was talking about a meeting where he was present, where Bill Clinton was there, and that Bill Barr, um, of course, the current attorney general, and who has a long history of working for the CIA as well, um, had been sent to meet with Clinton, who was then governor of Arkansas, um, as the emissary of Bill Casey, who, of course, was then CIA director, and that Bill Barr had basically told um, 
uh, Bill Clinton that because of Bill Clinton um, basically lending his state um, to the CIA for these Iran-Contra activities that Bill Casey um, had essentially told him that um, that you know this this apparatus that sort of developed during the um, the Reagan and Bush administration would would back him for the presidency. They'd support him for the presidency, and and Bill Barr called this the new covenant, which I thought was was quite. Um, quite telling when you look at the fact that, you know, regardless of, of Democrat or Republican in the United States for several decades, it's quite apparent that either party generally follows the same sort of policies and does the same sort of things. So, um, specifically Bill Clinton himself, right? So it just sort of um, seemed like a confirmation to me of how the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans essentially work for the same team. A lot of people say that after the Kennedy assassination, for example, the the CIA became the real government of the United States. Um, and I think that this meeting, as as recounted by Terry Reid, who of course used to work for the CIA, was very involved in in these activities during the time, um, suggests that 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 may in fact be the case. What can you tell us about Reagan and Clinton backer Jackson Stevens? and the complex financial web surrounding him, money laundering, financial espionage, and Stevens' connections to the Arkansas Rose Law Firm. Well, um, Jackson Stevens is an interesting character because he mostly backed Republican politicians, including Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr., but he was also uh, very instrumental in backing Bill Clinton's uh, career, specifically his um, his uh, bid for governor and later his presidential campaign, his successful presidential campaign, and actually extended millions of dollars in lines of credit to keep the Clinton's first presidential campaign afloat, actually. Um but Jackson Stevens, beyond uh, just funding Bill Clinton, also has other ties to the Clinton family because a lot of his business interests in Arkansas um, were represented by the Rose Law Firm, where Hillary Clinton was a partner. And Hillary Clinton um, personally um, oversaw a lot of legal work for Jackson Stevens and Stevens-owned companies. Um, so one of the cases that, that Hillary Clinton oversaw for Jackson Stevens actually involved the CIA-linked bank, uh, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, or BCCI. Um, of course, that bank was originally founded in, in Pakistan, but um, they were brought to the U.S. Um, by a group of investors that was actually uh, where Jackson Stevens was very prominent. And um, another key player there was the former budget director for Jimmy Carter, Burt Lance. Um, but the legal work um, to bring BCCI uh, to the United States was done by Rose Law Firm, specifically um, Hillary Clinton, uh, Webster Hubble, who later went on to serve a position in the Clinton White House, and um, another man whose last name um, I have difficulty pronouncing, but I believe it is C.J. Uh, Giroir, something to that effect. Um and this is significant as well because, of course, we know that BCCI was very involved in, in what was going on with Iran-Contra. They were very closely tied to the CIA. Um, they were also involved in, for example, uh, funding Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. They were involved in money laundering. Um, they were involved in all sorts of stuff. We know that one of the main... Um, Figures in Iran-Contra that used BCCI to great effect was um, Adnan Khashoggi, who, why he was um, brokering a lot of these arms deals um, as part of Iran-Contra, he was an asset to both the CIA and to Israeli intelligence. And actually, during this time period, he, um, Adnan Khashoggi, um, had hired, for still unknown purposes, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, after Epstein had left Bear Stearns in 1981, he often described his work as being a, as working as a quote-unquote financial bounty hunter. Um, 
hunting down and hiding funds and doing all sorts of shadow finance services for powerful people, one of them being Adnan Khashoggi during the period of time where Adnan Khashoggi was involved with BCCI and Iran-Contra. So that's a quite interesting tie-over. Um, but uh, going back to Jackson Stevens um, for a moment, we also know that another company that was represented by the Rose Law Firm that was owned by Jackson Stevens was Systematics, um, which of course was very involved. It was involved with... Um, marketing the stolen and later uh, bugged with a trap door for U.S. and Israeli intelligence version of the Promise software. And um, through Systematics, Systematics had um, this bug software um, installed on banks all over the world, including BCCI banks. And um, it was represented um, by, again, the Rose Law Firm, specifically Vince Foster, Webster Hubble, and Hillary Clinton. And later on in the early 90s, Vince Foster and Webster Hubble had um, significant financial stakes in Systematics. And actually, we know that um, Systematics also had a subsidiary in Israel, which would make sense given that the trapdoor um, was you know, created by Israeli intelligence, specifically the military intelligence agency, LAKIM, um, that, um, that was directed by Rafi Aiton during this time. Uh, you mentioned uh, Vince Foster. Of course, Vince Foster went to the White House with the, the Clinton administration, and uh, he died, uh, supposedly committed suicide. Did this come up in your research? Um, only a little bit, sort of tangentially, um, because um, it, it was actually in relation to what I was just talking about with, with systematics. Um, in, in some documents that, that I obtained regarding the, the litigation about the Promise software um, between Insula Inc. in the, in the U.S. government, um, there was um, an entire document really um, um, from the Insla side discussing how um, Vince Foster, uh, what was often cited as the reason for his suicide, this sudden depression that had fallen from him uh, just a few days prior to to the um, alleged suicide and, and, and whatnot, um, even though he'd never been depressed uh, before in his life. Um, Inslaw um, put forth um, considerable evidence, um, well, that, that I found convincing, but I won't go into specifics here, um, that Vince Foster's depression was related to um, a weakened meeting he had had with Webster Hubble, and that it had to do not with the Whitewater scandal of that time period, as is often thought, but actually had to do with um, systematics and something related to systematics in the install litigation there. Um, because, uh, as I mentioned, Vince Foster and Webster Hubble, um, during this period of time, they had significant financial interests in systematics. They'd also been involved with the, the litigation of it. Um, and, of course, there's the um, espionage angle of systematics um, in, in its connections to Israel um, and, and things like that. So, um, according to Inslaw, anyway, they seem to have believed that um, this this period of stress that preceded Foster's death um, was related to systematics um, and the ongoing litigation over the theft of the Promise software. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, From Reagan to Clinton, Organized Crime, Intelligence, and Human Trafficking. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you have a theory as to why Jeffrey Epstein was arrested again on July 7th? Why now, and why would he have returned to the U.S. in order to be arrested? He knew he would be arrested, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did, and I think the official story um, that 
these charges only, uh, you know, came uh, at the time they did because of the Miami Herald expose. Um, I don't really buy that because even though that that was a good report, um, usually <laughs> um, for people, you know, that studied the power elite and how, you know, political power really works in the United States, um, it, it's not it doesn't just come down to like a single like journalist, like a single report bringing about charges of this size to someone this politically uh, connected um, and, and, you know, by all indications powerful. Um, there's a couple plausible theories I've heard as to why that is um, that, that include um, things like, you know, uh, factional infighting in the power elite, specifically factional infighting in the mega group um, and sort of a divide there between people that support Netanyahu and that support Ehud Barak and some other things there because we've seen some splits. Um, with that over this period, and we also know that um, the the timing of the arrest of Jeffrey Epstein gave uh, um, gave Benjamin Netanyahu some much needed political fodder to go after Ehud Barak because Netanyahu himself is um, under investigation um, for for corruption, namely bribery, and I believe there's several investigations. I forget exactly how many, um, but of course now that. Um, after Epstein's arrest, um, he could call um, his main political opponent, Ehud Barak, um, cl a close associate of a pedophile and serial sex trafficker, which, of course, doesn't make bribery seem so bad um, when, when all is considered. So um, some people have pointed to that for the timing. Um, but I think a more likely um, possibility that I'm still investigating and has to do with a spinoff um, of my Epstein series that, that it will hopefully be out in a, in a couple of weeks um, has to do with the fact that um, uh, of Epstein's other role um, to intelligence, because let's remember too that um, Jeffrey Epstein, when you're looking at his ties to intelligence and as I document in my series, um, they really go back, um, you know, several decades, including decades before he even began um, the sexual blackmail operation, which appears to have begun around the year 1995 or so, um, or 1996. Um, we know that he was involved, for example, as I mentioned, with people like um, Khashoggi um, during Iran-Contra was doing sort of shadow finance activity um, way back then. And I would argue that he continued that activity um, concurrent with his, uh, a parallel to his um, sexual blackmail operation and also um, following his arrest um, his first arrest in 2007, because obviously after his arrest, then he couldn't continue the sexual blackmail operation to the same effect since he had, you know, essentially been outed for that activity. And, um, I, I think he continued that financial role, and I think the timing of his arrest um, is likely more related to that, and that he had sort of um, come to outlive his usefulness. And I say this because um, just, uh, I think it was one or two weeks before the Miami Herald expose came out, there was a change um, to U.S. policy that essentially allows every government agency to create a, um, have a public statement, financial statement, and a private uh, financial statement. And the private uh, and the public financial statement can be totally different, um, but the public one can be a total lie, and the government agency doesn't have to say it has been changed or modified or that it is a lie at all, um, which is really nuts when you think about it, um, because now looking at public financial statements, um, you know, there, there's no way to know how much money will be unaccounted for. Of course, we've seen over, you know, the past decades, really beginning since 1997, that um, several U.S. departments, uh, specifically the Department of Defense, um, have been unable to account for huge amounts of money, I mean, in the trillions of dollars. 
And, um, you know, I, I've done a couple interviews that I'll be including in my piece where a lot of people um, or where these people um, have suggested that the money laundering activities that Epstein was known to have been involved in during this time, uh, like a lot of that uh, money that was being laundered. Uh, were coming from these quote-unquote unsupported adjustments that were um, sort of being taken out of, of the government budget as, as these unsupported adjustments and then would have to be laundered by some sort of uh, foundation or offshore institution before they could go back to intelligence, um, whether that's an intelligence agency in the U.S. or elsewhere, who, who really knows at this point. But it appears that Epstein was involved with that, and then once that rule uh, was changed, that type of uh, function was no longer necessary, if that makes sense. And what's also interesting is that just a month after that law is passed, Deutsche Bank, which was um, Epstein's main um, bank for those types of activities during the, the last few years, anyway, um, only started to begin to close its accounts with Epstein. And it didn't fully close its account with Epstein until, I believe, uh, uh, until the end of June. And, of course, he was arrested the first week of July. So I think... Um, you know, there, there's definitely more to uncover there in terms of getting, um, you know, more um, more conclusive evidence as to this being the case. But I think that um, uh, would be much more convincing than just, you know, Epstein being taken down by the, by the Miami Herald. Now, you're saying that a new law has been passed that changes the policy of how U.S. government agencies report, what, their budgets? Yeah, well, I think this is why, I really think this has to be why, because there's no other explanation for him being arrested, I think, that would be this convincing. Or at least not one I've seen yet. So so this is um, something that was decided by the Federal Accounting uh, Standards Advisory Board, which is not a, a very well-known government body, but nonetheless exists. And it um, it created a new standard that's been called Standard 56 uh, for classified activities, and what it does is that it allows government agencies to modify public financial statements and and basically move uh, expenses from one line item to another, um, and basically have that be different um, between what is publicly released and what is um, you know factual. Uh, of course, the factual one being a separate but private, not publicly released financial statement. So you're saying that this new law, in terms of not having to uh, make a public report of all of your expenses uh, on behalf of uh, U.S. government agencies, that this rendered uh, the kind of money laundering that Jeffrey Epstein looks like he was involved in would have rendered that obsolete. Is that right? Yeah. Because now um, no one will know if the government is missing money, right? They don't have to take it through a third party. They can just sort, sort of, um, you know, take it out directly. And, um, you know, the CIA, ever since, uh, like, 1949, they, they've been sort of allowed, um, because of the, the the act that created the CIA, it um, has sort of been allowed to, um, you know, since then sort of pilfer money from uh, different government agencies. And so there's been speculation, of course, that at least some of the missing money, um, because it's so much money um, over the years from, from these departments, um, was, was done with that intention. Now it doesn't have to be, um, it won't be publicly known, right? So it doesn't have to be laundered because it can just be moved from one place to the other. There's no um, need for the middleman that um, had previously been necessary. 
Uh, now, uh, just uh, briefly, uh, when we started to talk about why Jeffrey Epstein may have been arrested the second time and the timing on it, you did mention um, uh, Israeli politics and uh, Netanyahu and Ehud Barak. And of course, there have been uh, uh, pictures uh, posted publicly of, of Barak uh, either entering or or leaving uh, Jeffrey Epstein's New York City mansion. So there's that political struggle there. But in describing that, you happen to mention the mega group, which we covered in our first interview. But now, just very briefly, could could you tell us what the mega group is? Right. So um, the mega group is this. Uh, it's this group of. Um donors in the U.S. that are uh, major political players in both the U.S. and Israel. They include people um, like the Bronfman brothers. Well, Edgar Bronfman is, is is dead. But, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, big name people that we've been um, talking about, including Ronald Lauder, um, Leslie Wexner, who's very tied into Epstein, um, and a, a bunch of other, um, you know, famous, uh, famous people like uh, Steve Spielberg, for example, is on there. And he's tied into Lee Wasserman, who we talked about earlier, um, and some other people like that. Michael Steinhardt um, is another member, um, the, the hedge fund manager who was close to um, Mark Rich and some uh, other people like that. Um, so, I, yeah, I was bringing up the point of factional infighting. Because in, in just um, the past few years, even though, for example, I mentioned earlier that Ronald Lauder was a longtime uh, backer of Netanyahu, he has begun to publicly rebuke him, I think, uh, starting two years ago, because the mega group is largely secular. It's mostly secular um, Jewish American billionaires. And, um, of course, Netanyahu is currently trying to forge an alliance with um very hard right uh, religious Zionists in Israel, which is not particularly popular with the mega group, and is actually why people like Ronald Lauder and some other mega group figures have been publicly rebuking him. Um, and Leslie Wexner, of course, is, has also turned away um, from Netanyahu, and he's also uh, publicly rebuked Trump as well, um, even though he used to be a Republican. Um, so it's um, th there's definitely. Um, I would call it factional infighting in the sense that um, there used to be a consensus in the mega group of sort of backing Israel and sort of backing uh, normally Republican candidates um, in the U.S. And, and that has started to sort of shift in recent years. And, of course, the timing of the arrest really um, uh, gave a huge boost to Netanyahu in terms of giving him um, a way to sort of minimize uh, the corruption scandals um, that he's facing and throw a whole bunch of mud in the face of his main uh, political opponent, Ehud Barak. And how has mainstream media been covering the Epstein case, specifically his ties to intelligence, including pedophilia and the trafficking of underage sex slaves? Well, the intelligence ties, um, <laughs> I, I haven't seen a lot of coverage of that. Um, most of the coverage of the mainstream media has focused on the circumstances of his death, this um, quote-unquote investigation that's getting trying to get to the bottom of that. But of course, I um, am of the opinion that any sort of investigation um, here, since it's you know under the jurisdiction, um, the, the two investigations are under the jurisdiction, both of them of, of William Barr, who we've mentioned a couple of times. I don't really see that um, 
going anywhere. Um, I don't really necessarily trust that investigation for that reason. And also because of how it's just been conducted. I mean, a lot of the guards in the prison aren't even cooperating with authorities. They claim to have lost the footage of, of the cameras that were looking at his cell that, that, well, not lost, sorry. They say they're unusable, but they don't say why they're unusable. They don't say if it's because of a camera malfunction. They don't specify if it's technical or not, which you think would be quite easy to do. They just say they're unusable and that's the end of discussion. Um, and of course, we know that um, federal authorities, too, even when they were investigating Epstein, they, they went to great lengths not to raid several of his properties, um, including the infamous uh, Caribbean island, Little St. James. They didn't raid until after his death. Um, and they still have not raided the New Mexico property, even though that was known to have been um, a, a key um, area where he was involved in this in this abusive activity. Um so I think, you know, um, basically the, the media, the mainstream media has been focusing on those sorts of points. But, um, you know, um, for what I just mentioned, some other reasons, I personally think that uh, focusing on that really distracts us from the larger story, which is the fact that the co-conspirators of Epstein, the most obvious ones anyway, like Elaine uh, Maxwell and Leslie Wexner, uh, they are still at large. Um, and of course, the intelligence agencies that supported this and allowed this to uh, occur with state sponsorship, of course, are, are going to uh, not suffer any consequence for this. Um, and so I think uh, the mainstream media is just really fulfilling its its role here of, of you know, keeping people distracted from the, the bigger picture um, and, and of the real scandal when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein. Whitney Webb, thank you so much again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I've been speaking with Whitney Webb. Today's show has been From Reagan to Clinton, Organized Crime, Intelligence, and Human Trafficking. Whitney Webb is a Mint Press news journalist based in Chile. She has contributed to several independent media outlets, including Global Research, EcoWatch, the Ron Paul Institute, and 21st Century Wire, among others. She has made several radio and television appearances and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. Visit mintpressnews.com to access her four-part exclusive investigative series, Inside the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail. The current story is at the top of the website, and the banner link to the entire series is right below. That's mintpressnews.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?